Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for all that Christ has done for us on the cross. As we just sang, he became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the wrath. And now we stand forgiven at the cross. It's that wonderful reality that we come to celebrate and to meditate upon tonight. I pray as we open your word that you would kindly push distractions aside, enable us to to move our attention from the cares that we've been carrying with us this week, even today, and to set our hearts upon the greatest event in history. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's natural for us to be forgetful, and that is also true when it comes to forgetting that we are loved. I think of children that when asked if their parents love them, they know that, but in a particular moment, maybe when their parents are not giving them something that they want, that thought of their parents' love seems to go out the window and they seem to think in that moment their parents do not love them because they're not giving them what they want. And this is true for young children who simply want the cookie. Uh, And this is true for, oh, I don't know, teenagers who want to go to that party or that friend's house, right? It's easy to, in the midst of circumstances, to lose sight of the fact that they are loved by their parents. But the same is also true. The same problem could be said for Christians, that we can easily lose sight of the love of God. Oh, if we were given a a test of our theology and, and asked, do you believe that God loves you? We would certainly mark yes. But when it comes to our daily life and, and how we think about God as, as we're going about our business, it's easy to forget, or at least for that truth to fade to the very back recesses of our minds. But this is only a problem when we fail to keep the truth of God before us, when we don't see all that God has written for us for our contemplation. And one place where God has declared his love for us in his word that proves to be a reminder for us is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's word if you're not there already. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. We are going to confine ourselves to this verse or at least use it as a springboard to look at the deep truths that are expressed here. Follow along as I read the verse for us. I'm going to begin actually in verse 7 and read through verse 12. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In this one verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we're going to see three movements of the love of God toward us. Three movements of the love of God toward us so that we would stand in awe afresh this evening. The first movement that we see in this verse is God's initiative towards us. So I want you to behold God's initiative towards you as expressed in this verse. The verse begins, in this is love. John is seeking to make a definitional statement. He's defining what love is. As we saw in verse 7, this paragraph begins with John making a plea that believers are to love one another. And then he gives reasons why that is true. Why should believers love one another? His first reason in verses 7 and 8 is that our love to one another shows that we have been born of God and know God. It's an it's a evidence of our identity, an evidence of our new life in Christ is that we love. But then his second reason in verses 9 and 10 that we should love one another is, that the, is because of the character of God and the action of God toward us in the gospel enables us to love. It's because of what God has done for us that enables us to actually love one another. And so as we come to verse 10, we see God's love for us put on full display. In this is love. And this is so helpful for us because our world is so confused about love, is it not? I mean, if you just turned on the radio and listened for all the instances of love and try to take your definition of love from what you hear in those songs, you're going to get a jumbled mess. It's all over the map. There's a love that glorifies infidelity to one person for the sake of love to somebody else. Or you hear the statement these days, love is love which essentially means that what I want and desire qualifies as legitimate. And so therefore, my love is okay however I want to define that. But we must ask the question, by what standard is love defined? Are we free as human beings to simply define love however we want to? Well, humanity looking to itself has no answer on its own. Because when you say that we've evolved from primordial goo uh, to, to be more complex beings and that we have simply survived because we're the strongest and fittest, then there's really no basis for love. Because 
the only thing that exists in that worldview is self-interest, in which you're looking out for yourself so that you don't die off and your species doesn't die off. That materialistic evolutionary worldview cannot explain love as we know it. It utterly fails. But contrary to that, the biblical worldview begins with a benevolent creator who made us in his image. And who is this creator? Well, he's the God who John says in verse 8 is love. He is the very definition of love in himself. His character, his action, and his will is what sets the boundaries for what this love is. And it's what he's done that puts true love on full display. And it's here in verse 10 that we see this love of God displayed and described. It's a condensed form of the Bible's message on God's love. But as he begins to describe what God's love is, he sets the record straight of where this love originated. Notice what he says. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Before we can appreciate the love of God for us, we need to come to grips with the fact that we did not love God on our own. John clearly says that we have not loved God. This is a fact that is true of all of humanity for all of time. And the rest of the Bible clearly affirms this fact. This is how God operates. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. When God chooses to set his love upon someone, he does it purely upon grace, not upon any merit of the recipients. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, we see God's reason for choosing Israel. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we see that this is, was God's way with Israel, that he set his love upon them, not because they were lovely, and, and thus he, he says, oh, they love me so much, I guess I'll, I'll love them in return. No, he says, uh, I, I just chose to put my love upon you. It was pure grace. Let's... Look in John chapter 15. We see this was the way in Jesus choosing his disciples as well. John, the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 16. He says clearly to his disciples in the upper room, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide 
so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He says, you did not choose me, I chose you. It was not because of something lovely in the disciples, it was merely because he chose to place his love upon them. Finally, turn to, to see this in one more place, Romans chapter 5. Here we see the doctrinal expression of this truth that we did not love God, that we were not in a position in which we loved God, and yet he loved us. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Two terms. I want you to notice in those verses, sinners and enemies. This is how the Bible describes us before God's salvation comes to us. Not that we have loved God, for we were enemies. We were sinners. You see, God did not wait around for us to get our act together. He didn't stand back and, and say, oh, let's see them clean themselves up and see if they love me, and then I'll see if they're deserving of my love. Oh, friends, if he had done that, we would all be lost. Would we not? Because there is no way in which we turn towards God on our own. God had to come to get us. He had determined to place his love upon us even in our despicable state. This was a gracious love, totally and completely undeserved. So as we think about what the love of God is tonight, you need to remember and realize that you did not earn that love. You couldn't even if you wanted to. The Bible is very clear that mankind in his unaided condition is unable to reach out to God. No one is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3 says. Ephesians 2 says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're spiritually dead. A corpse can't get up and walk. A corpse can't reach out and do something. A corpse can't seek for God. Spiritually, we're dead. Therefore, if God did not initiate his love towards you, you would be without God and without hope. But, John says, it's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. We were not left in a state of not loving God, but God came to get us. And so this evening, we need to behold that initiative that God took to move towards us even while we were unlovely and while we hated him. Think on the fact, meditate on the fact that he moved towards you and said, I love you, even when you were unlovely. 
He loved you before you were born. He loved you even when you were a lost sinner, an enemy of him. And so beholding such love should humble us. It should also inflame our hearts for the father, towards the Father who lavished us with such love, who did not leave us in our sorry state, but he loved us. So this text first calls us to behold God's initiative towards us. But secondly, in seeing his love, we must behold God's generosity towards us. He goes on to say, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Sent his son. It's reminiscent of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's giving and sending reality is, is a, the greatest expression of his generosity towards us. And so as, as John is describing this love, it's like we're further unwrapping a gift. And you, we, we got one glimpse of it, and now we're opening, tearing off the wrapping some more and seeing more fully what this gift is to us. And each step of the way, we're more and more surprised because we realize that we didn't deserve this gift at all. We would not even have asked for this gift because we were dead in our sins. But it is a gift that we will be thankful for all of eternity for his generosity. His generosity was expressed in the sending of his son. Now the, the and here says that he loved us and sent his son. That and is not meant to say that there's two different things, that we have God's love and God's sending of his son. It's really uh, further explaining the love. God Loved us, that is, he sent his son, would be another way to render that. The sending of his son was a full demonstration of his love. In the sending of Jesus Christ, his son, who existed for all eternity in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit, he took on human flesh to save mankind. John Calvin wrote this, he said, it was then from God's goodness alone as from a fountain that Christ with all his blessings has come to us. As from a fountain, I love that. This fountain of generosity as God is flowing out of his person. He is by nature a loving, generous God. He is not stingy looking to eke out a little bit of love and a little bit of grace here and there. No, he, is, he has a heart that is full of love and full of grace and wants to shower it upon his creatures. And it comes through Christ. Christ is the funnel, is the fountain through which all of these blessings come and flow to us. You see, the reality is that God did not hold anything back in his giving on our behalf. When we talk about God's generosity in the gospel, we're not just saying that, that God gave us something and he's really nice for doing so. No, we're saying that God gave completely and sacrificially 
Think of it this way. It's like if you heard of a billionaire who said that he was giving $1,000 to 100 people randomly with uh, unprompted, he just decided to do that. And you go, wow, that guy's really generous. He's just like handing out his money to people. But it's different than if you heard of a billionaire who gave half of his fortune to random people. That would cause you to be wowed and to ask you, why in the world did he do that? What was it about these people that he just wanted to give, you know, half a billion dollars away to? That doesn't make any sense. It's that kind of generosity that is found in the gospel. And unfortunately, we we're around it. We hear it so much, right? That God sent his son. That God loved the world that he gave his son. That we can fail to be wowed by it like we should. But God's generosity is unmatched and unparalleled. No human illustration even comes close to describing how great his love and how great the gift that he gave when he sent his beloved son. You remember the voice from heaven that broke through into this world while Jesus was on earth at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration when the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. His delight in his Son was so great that he had to kind of break the rules as it were and kind of open up and speak into time and space, so that the world would know that his heart is brimming and overflowing with joy and delight in Christ. And yet it was that son that he gave. God's giving of his son is his eternal display of his magnanimous love. We don't need to look anywhere else for assurance of God's love for us. Again, I have a quote from John Calvin. He says, When a real and full certainty of divine love towards us is sought for, we must look nowhere else but to Christ. Have you ever had thoughts of, I wonder if God loves me? Does God love me today? Where is God's love? And what John is, is telling us, and, and, and Calvin here is, is helping us to see, is that if we are looking for full certainty of God's love for us, then we need to look nowhere else but in Christ. For it is in him that we see the love of God in full display. But it's easy to forget that or to lose sight of that, isn't it? The clear sight of his love gets clouded with the concerns of life. Like in a driving storm, the the road is hard to see as as the things of life are coming in our way and, and clouding the windshield. Our vision of God's love gets clouded for different reasons. Maybe for you, it's the physical pain and suffering that you've gone through or are going through. And as the waves of pain hit you and doctor visits and, and treatments. It, it becomes larger than the love of Christ. 
For others, it might be the pain of broken relationships, of hurtful words in relationships that sends you spiraling downward and you wonder, where is the Lord? Does he even love me? For others, still it might be stress and the combined pressures of life. There's so much going on. There's so many things going on in your life that you're, you're worried and you're, you're, you're so set on all those things. Your mind is, is clouded with all of that. That the cross of Christ is clouded for you. It's also possible that we can lose sight of God's love by slipping into a view of the Christian life that is subtly legalistic. And you might say, oh no, I'm not legalistic. But friends, we, we subtly begin thinking that God's love towards us is determined on our performance of spiritual duties. Do you feel that God loves you more when you read your Bible in the morning and have your devotional time? Do you feel like maybe God is a little, loves you a little less when you don't? Or maybe it's church attendance. You think God is smiling at you because you went to church this week and, and he's a little frowning at you because you didn't. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's evangelism. All of these things which are good and which God does call the Christian to be about, but if those begin to be the barometer of, our, of God's love for us, then we have inverted the Christian life because the good works flow out of God's love for us, not in order to earn God's love for us. That is a gospel of works. That is a false gospel. That is a damning gospel. That is, a, that is the message of every other religion in the world. Do X, Y, and Z and you will be saved. But the message of Christianity is Trust in Christ who already did X, Y, and Z and you will be saved. And then he will produce in you good works. This is what happens when we lose sight of Christ. Jesus Christ is the preeminent display of God's love for us. It's like the billboard beside the road of life that we never pass. We're driving down the road and we keep going and we look, can always look to that huge flashing neon sign that is screaming out to us that God loves us because the cross of Christ looms over all of history. We merely need to look to it and not to everything else. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where the Apostle Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He did not spare his own son, but he gave. His generosity towards us is found in his love. So this text first calls us to behold God's initiative towards us. Secondly, to behold his generosity to us. And finally, you need to behold God's salvation of you. What did God's son accomplish? What did he do? This is where the verse ends. And while the sending of God's son was significant, not just because he left the comforts of heaven to come to earth, but that he came to die for his enemies. Not that we lo have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
In other words, God's, the climax of God's love is not so much in the incarnation as it is in the atonement. He, Jesus came to earth for a purpose. He didn't just come to hang out. He, he came to accomplish something. He had a mission. And that is how our salvation is accomplished. Now, I'm sure you have noticed the big $25 word in the middle of this, the propitiation, a word we use every day in conversation, right? Uh, and as you can imagine, there has been debate over the years about the meaning of the Greek word that's here translated propitiation. But there really shouldn't be because the meaning is really quite clear from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, it's been claimed that the Greek word halosmos, which is the word translated propitiation here, means expiation instead of propitiation. Expiation, meaning the wiping away of sin or forgiveness of sin. So it's, it's saying something about what happened to sin, dealing with sin. And this is the way the, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, translates it. And while this word can certainly carry some of those connotations of the wiping away of sin, it primarily refers to satisfying the wrath of God. Okay? Propitiation means to propitiate the wrath of God or satisfy the wrath of God. This is the way that the word is used in the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used in other Greek literature and throughout the New Testament. It is, it is they all speak to this usage. Therefore, to say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins is saying that he was the one who died in order to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. Now, this is not the first time that John has used this word. He used it first back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I invite you to flip back there to see that because I think the context there helps us to see this idea of satisfying the wrath of God a little more clearly than in our present verse. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, he writes, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now it's clear that he's writing to people who he believes are going to struggle with sin. He says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, in which every hand should go up and say, yeah, that's me, John. He then provides an answer. And what is the answer for the sin? It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. But why Jesus? Because he is the advocate before the Father, John says. We have an advocate with the Father. But this begs the question. Why do we need an advocate? Why do we need someone to argue for our defense before the Father? I believe the only reasonable explanation is that we have displeased the Father and therefore we cannot approach the Father on our own. We need someone to stand in our stead. 
We need someone to turn that displeasure, that wrath away from us. And John says that Jesus is the one who does that for us. Why him? Why Jesus? It's because he, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins. He stood in our stead. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. There's no one else that fits the bill. Now, some would like to say that humanity's greatest problem is not salvation from God's wrath because of our sin, but they point to other issues in our world, such as injustice or racism or ecological destruction. And while these are problems in their own way, they are not the ultimate problem. In other words, we can affirm that there are plenty of horizontal problems seen in our world today and throughout human history. But the greatest problem is vertical. The greatest problem is between us and our Creator. Now some also argue that this interpretation of propitiation was invented in the Middle Ages with the theologian Anselm. But this also was untenable because the Bible is abundantly clear that Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God by being our substitute. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so as we look at the whole of Scripture, we see this concept of sinners needing a substitute, sinners needing someone to stand in their place. And just to give you kind of an idea of this theme throughout Scripture. Let's first turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Again, I just want to give you a sense of how the Bible is unified in this message that sinners need a substitute. Exodus 12 is the passage on the Passover. Israel has, uh, is about to leave Egypt. God has uh, sent the, the nine plagues already. He's about to send the tenth. About to free his people, save his people from the Pharaoh, from Egypt. And he sets up this ceremony, the Passover. And what we see in this Passover is that the Jewish families were to choose a lamb. And that lamb was then to be slain on this night and they were spread the blood over their doorposts. And he says in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood of the lamb stood in place for the firstborn of each family. Without the blood... 
the firstborn dies. And this was God's way of saving Israel as they were leaving Egypt. And as we know, the gospel writers are very clear in their description of what Jesus went through in his crucifixion that he was the true Passover lamb, that he was the true lamb of God who was the substitute for sinners. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, you can write that down. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, the apostle Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Again, we continue to see this theme of a substitute standing in our place, absorbing the wrath of God. In Exodus 12, the angel of the Lord was coming over and was going to execute judgment, execute wrath upon both Egypt and Israel but the blood stood in the place and averted the wrath of God. Here in Leviticus 16, this is, describes the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And we see, look in verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near the, before the Lord and died. This harkens back to chapter 10, where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, went into the Lord and offered an unacceptable sacrifice, and they were struck down dead. They did not come to God on God's terms, and therefore the wrath of God came out and destroyed them. And so here the concern is, okay, Israel, you got to get this right. If you don't want the wrath of God coming out upon all of you, like it did with Nadab and Abihu, then pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. This is the selection of the two goats. One is offered as a sin offering, and the other is known as the scapegoat. The scapegoat. Look in chapter, uh, verse 20 through 22. It says, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." The goat here, known as the scapegoat, is the one who the sins of the people of Israel are placed upon his head. He is then released out into the wilderness, which is not a happy and good place. Okay, That is going out to a bad place to die. And thereby representing that this goat is going out, taking the sins of the people and averting the wrath of God from them. We see that it is a substitute because both hands are laid upon his head and the sins and transgressions and iniquities are confessed over on that goat. And it says in verse 22 that the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself. That goat stood in the place of Israel so that Israel could approach the Lord. One more 
Old Testament passage for us, Isaiah. Chapter 53, verses that were read earlier and are well known by us. But again, showing that sinners are in need of a substitute to take away the wrath of God. Verse 4, Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we see the sins of the people going upon the head of the Messiah. This prophecy speaking of the future Messiah, which we know is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers make that abundantly clear. And he took transgressions upon himself. He was then crushed. He was pierced. And through that crushing, through that piercing, he brought peace and salvation to those who placed their faith in him. This is the testimony of all of Scripture. Romans chapter 3, we don't have time to look in there tonight, but again, Romans 3, 21 through 26 describes this reality that salvation comes because Jesus Christ died and took the punishment that sinners deserve. So as we turn back to 1 John chapter 4, we see that the love of God displayed and that the Son was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ took the punishment that our sins deserved. God, in his holy wrath against sin, was completely justified. People have a problem with the wrath of God. They like to focus on the love of God. And they say, the wrath of God, that doesn't, that doesn't match with the wrath and the love. Don't go together. But his love is so great for the right things that to see his own holiness and his own righteousness transgressed, transgressed causes a righteous fury. And you can, you know, a mere shadow of that kind of fury is the kind of fury that we might have over those who would seek to abuse children, those who would kill others for glee, gleefully, those who would abuse women. This kind of rage that rises up in our hearts is just a mere shadow of the rage and wrath that God has infinitely over the sin of mankind that rises up to him. And as Jesus then hung upon the cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. Every ounce of it. 
Again, the Son of God who existed in all eternity past in perfect harmony and bliss with the Father and with the Spirit. And yet he came and condescended and took on human flesh, which is amazing enough, but he didn't just come and take on flesh. He went to the cross and he bore the wrath of God on behalf of all who would place their faith in him. Jesus was treated as if he was the most vile human being who ever lived. I mean, that's the kind of rage that was poured out upon Jesus at the cross. And yet, as we know, he deserved none of it. He had no ounce of sin in him. But guys, the Father did not hold back. Even as he was looking upon his own son, his one with whom he is well pleased and he is delighted in for all of eternity. But he poured that cup of his wrath and continued to pour and continued to pour until the last drop. And Christ cried out, it is finished. The son bore it all as the father poured it all. In order for our sins to be forgiven, and not held against us, the debt had to be fully paid. And so we see that the triune God accomplished our salvation through the death of Christ. As Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, taking the wrath of God, he was then buried, and then he rose again three days later. The Father raising him up to prove that his sacrifice was sufficient and he accepted it. Folks, each one of us needs salvation from our sins. There is no exceptions. No one is exempt. All of us are under sin. All of us have broken the law. We have rebelled against his lordship, his authority, and his sovereignty. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Tonight, we must see clearly the condemnation from God that our sins have deserved. But as we see our sin, we must turn and behold Jesus Christ. God's Son, who satisfies the wrath of God on your behalf. If you were here this evening and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard about this thing that Jesus did, dying upon a cross. But you haven't seen Jesus on the cross as a substitute for your sin. And you haven't cried out to God, God, forgive me for my sin and my rebellion. Please save me. You haven't confessed and repented. You haven't trusted in Jesus as the only substitute for your sin, then I have good news for you tonight. You can be saved from the wrath of God that rests over your head this very moment. For all who do not believe are destined to experience that wrath themselves forever in hell. But the way of life is available to you if you would but put your faith in God's perfect substitute, 
who satisfies the wrath of God. Believe and trust that it was sufficient to save you. And you this night can go home a free and saved person. I invite you to do it right now where you're sitting. In the quietness of your heart, call out to God to save you. And he will. If you have any questions about what I've talked about tonight, I invite you to come talk to me after the service. I'd love to explain it to you more and tell you of how you can experience this life in Christ. But for those of us who do believe, do you see the love of God displayed to you in this? Do you see his love and his initiative and his generosity and his salvation to you? Behold it. Look upon it. Don't turn your eyes away from it. And not just now. This isn't a once a year thing or a once a month thing or a once a week thing. This is a, a daily thing. We have to keep our gaze set upon the cross. If we are going to remember and live out of his love for us. And so we have the opportunity tonight to celebrate that love that for those of us, the church of God, those of us who have believed that we have been set free and we have been saved into a family, a fellowship of fellow believers who have had the wrath of God propitiated on our behalf. And we get to celebrate that through communion tonight.